recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, May 12, 2012. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. This program tonight is aimed at providing the Christian identity community with, a, with an objective look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, what they are, and what they contain. That, that's hard to do in one program. I, I won't be able to scratch the surface of the Dead Sea Scrolls in, in an hour or, or even two hours, but, but we can get an idea of, of what they contain, and I feel, and what they're about, and who wrote them, and I feel that this is necessary because there is so much propaganda which persists to this day concerning the scrolls. And many people, even in Christian identity, abuse the Dead Sea Scrolls in order to promote their own pet theories concerning certain things. First, the idea that the Dead Sea Scrolls were written by Essenes is most likely wrong, and that will be addressed here. Secondly, the idea that the writers of the Dead Sea Scrolls were Christians or knew anything about Christianity is absolutely wrong. Thirdly, the idea that the Dead Sea Scrolls would somehow shake the foundations of Western religion, as is so often stated, or force us to change our more traditional views in reference to Christianity is absolutely wrong. And that will also be expounded upon further and hopefully become evident as we proceed. There is no substantial evidence that the Dead Sea Scrolls were written by Essenes. Reading the professional archaeology journals, scholars and academics, not that I really trust them all, right? They refer to the authors of the scrolls as the Qumran sect or the Dead Sea sect. And that is proper, since a definite identification of these people with any of the historically known sects of Judea cannot be made with total certainty, not with the information that we have today. Therefore, here the writers, or possibly only the keepers of the Dead Sea Scroll, shall be referred to as the Qumran sect. Although I shall set forth my own ideas in reference to their identity later on in this discussion. Now, some people may point passages in Pliny's Natural History, in, in Book 5, Section 73, which, according to the claims of some people, seems to support the identity of Qumran as an Essene settlement. Yet there is much dispute concerning that passage. And there's an article in Biblical Archaeology Review. I didn't pull it out for this presentation. Uh, I've cited it and, and read it in the past. And, and it was dated July, August 2002 in, in that issue on page 18 in an article called Searching for Essenes. And, and that gives the basic details of, of the, um, the disputes surrounding this passage in Pliny the Elder. Pliny describes the Essenes in a few lines, and he said that it was a city of Essenes at what we would call En Gedi, or, or Ein Gedi, which is known from the scripture, 
which is on the Dead Sea, and it's about midway between the northern and southern limits of the Dead Sea. So, so it's far south of Jerusalem, right? Pliny's account was not a first-hand account, however. It was evidently received from a Roman named Marcus Vipsanius Agrippa. However, both Philo and Josephus attest, and, and they are much better historical sources, and they both attest that the Essenes had no city of their own, but they dwelt in many places throughout Palestine. Josephus testified that the Essenes, and I quote, have no certain city, but many of them dwell in every city, and if any of their sect comes from other places, what they have, or what they possess, right, lies open for them just as if it were their own. My castle is your castle. That's from Wars of the Judeans, Book 2, Chapter 8. And so there are difficulties with identifying the members of the Qumran sect as Essenes. And Gedi is also at least 20 miles south of where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, which was a far distance in tiny and ancient Palestine. Even if the large number of Essenes did dwell at En Gedi, this is far from proof that the Qumran sect were Essenes. Jerusalem itself is closer to Qumran than En Gedi is. These things are still argued among the Jews. And it seems to me that the earliest and largest proponents of the identification of the Qumran sect as Essenes are indeed certain Jews. At Qumran, one archaeological site near to where the scrolls were found contains remains of what can only be described as a villa or a country estate. It's a very small settlement. And so far as been determined, there was no large town or city at Qumran or in its immediate vicinity 2,000 years ago. Here we should discuss the Essenes. There's also a lot of propaganda concerning them, right? So that we can understand them as well as we can before determining whether or not the Dead Sea Scrolls belong to them. Josephus's description of the Essenes, found in Wars of the Judeans in Book 2, Chapter 8, is very much like Luke's description of some of the first Christians, which we find in Acts chapters 2 and 4. Yet that does not necessarily mean that these first Christians were Essenes, or that Essenes were the first Christians. That cannot be established either from any of the actual historical texts which we have. However, I'm going to read the passages so that we may compare them. Here is the passage from Josephus, which describes the communal living style of the Essenes. From Wars, 119 through 122. For there are three philosophical sects among the Jews, or among the Judeans. The followers of the first, of which are the Pharisees, of the second, the Sadducees. And the third sect, which pretends to a severer discipline, are called Essenes. These last are Judeans by birth. Well, well by that we, we believe that they would have excluded the Canaanites and Edomites who were folded into Judea in, in times recent to when Josephus was writing, relatively. These last are Judeans by birth and seem to have a greater affection for one another than the other sects have. These Essenes reject pleasures as an evil. 
but esteem continence and the conquest over our passions to be a virtue. And, and we see that in Christianity. They neglect wedlock, but select other persons' children while they are pliable and fit for learning and esteemed to be esteemed to be of their own kindred, meaning of their own race, and form them according to their own manners. They do not absolutely deny the fitness of marriage and the succession of mankind thereby continued, but they guard against the lascivious behavior of women. Now, now Josephus was a married man. I didn't see him as a uh, as, as an as a misogynist, as many people might describe him here, and are persuaded that none of them, none of them, meaning none of the women, preserve their fidelity to one man. These men are despisers of riches, and so very communicative as raises our admiration. What what he, he means by so very communicative is so very sharing, right? Nor is there anyone to be found among them who has more than another, for it is a law among them that those who come to them must let what they have be common to the whole order, insomuch that among them all there is no appearance of poverty or excess of riches. Sounds very Pauline in, in religious nature. But everyone's possessions are intermingled with everyone's possessions, and so there as is, as it were, one patrimony among all the brethren. We also see that idea in the Sermon on the Mount to some degree. Here are the passages from Acts, which describes the communal living of early Christians. And let me say that Christianity respects property rights and the rights of ownership. It doesn't forcibly separate you from your property, and it doesn't force you to separate or, or to share your property with people who are not of your own kindred and who are not worthy. So, so Christianity, please don't confuse it with the socialism that, that all Western governments pr are forced to practice today under the Jews, right? Christianity is not Marxism, right? Acts chapter 2, verses 44 through 47. Let me say that Christianity is a hell of a lot more like national socialism the way white people should act towards one another. And I quote from Acts 2.44, And all that believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need, and they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily as should be saved. Of course, I'm quoting this from the King James Version, right? Acts chapter 2, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither said any of them that ought of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Sounds like the Essenes. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the prices of the things that were sold, and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which being interpreted is the son of consolation, a Levite and of the country of Cyprus, having landed, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. 
So, so we see that the, the, the earliest Christians did celebrate a communal living, and that probably was a good idea in light of the fact that the, um, that the enemies of them and of God were in control of Judea totally and, and sought to persecute them and take away from them everything that they had. While some of the sectarian documents found at Qumran do indicate that the possessions of sect members were controlled by the sect and not by the individual, and, and examples of that are in 4Q, Rule of the Community, and I won't quote it here, so it may appear that these people were Essenes. Yet such communal societies were certainly not novel. They weren't novel in Palestine and they weren't novel elsewhere. They certainly occurred elsewhere. I'll cite an example. Diodorus Siculus said of certain Greek colonists at Lepara in Sicily that they took over the cultivation of the islands, which they had made the common property of the community. Their possessions also they made common property, and living according to the public mess system, they passed their lives in this communistic fashion for some time. That's from Theodore Siculus's Library of History, Book 5, Chapter 9. Theodorus wrote from about 50 BC. And so it is quite possible, and, and it is fully evident, that other groups besides the Essenes lived in a communal fashion. This way of life was known among both the Greeks and the Hebrews. Yet others of the Qumran documents suggest that these people, meaning the, the Qumran sect, did not live in a truly communal manner, such as 4Q instruction, the, 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 um, the, the scrolls just known as instruction, that's their title. And I will quote one of those fragments, which is labeled 4Q 416 fragment 2 and 4Q 417 fragment 1 which discuss the borrowing of necessities and advice, advise of the need to repay such loans as quickly as possible. These do not seem to be Essene teachings, since in a community where all things are held in common, there should be no need for borrowing or to make repayment for what one requires. This is especially true if the Qumran sect, and we'll get into this a little later, was as wealthy as the treasures which are listed on their copper scroll purports them to be. Now, from the scroll known as 4Q instruction, 4Q means that, that this scroll was found in the fourth cave at Qumran. There were 11 caves in Qumran where documents were found. And, and this is the copy or one of the copies of the instructional scroll which set a lot of the guidelines for the Qumran community, and it was found in, in several copies in several caves. And this is from 4Q Instruction. Now, all of the um, scrolls also have a catalog number accompanying their cave number. So this is from the fragment known as 4Q416, fragment 2. If a man's creditor has lent him in money, hastily pay it back and you will be even with him. For the purse of your treasures you have entrusted to your creditor on account of your neighbors you have given all your life with it. Now from 4Q instruction from 4Q17, fragment 1. And if you are in want for what you lack, 
Borrow without money, for God's treasure house will not be lacking. This establishes that these people were not Essenes, right? At his command, everything will come into being, and that which he gives you for food, eat it, and no more, lest you shorten your life. If you borrow money from men for your need, do not, and, and then there's an ellipsis, day or night, and let there be no rest for your soul until you have repaid your creditor. Now, regardless of what one thinks about the advice on credit and payment, such advice is frequent in the Dead Sea Scrolls, in, in these instructional scrolls, but, but in my opinion, it defies the idea that it belongs to a large religious group spread throughout Palestine, which shared everything that it had in a communal fashion. These people were not Essenes. Such a group should have little need for borrowing, especially since they lived as Josephus described them. Now, Josephus, too, Josephus was an authority on the Essenes. He could speak about the Essenes because, as he relates in his own biographical work, he had joined the sect of the Essenes as a young man and stayed with it for several years. I believe it was three years before he left the sect. So he therefore knew the sect of the Essenes intimately. He was one of them for a long time, and he had um, every authority to write about them in the manner that he did. He, he is a trustworthy source on the matter. So while the Qumran sect members were, were required upon joining, and this is in the documents of the sect, they were required to turn their property over to the community. They nevertheless are described as having borrow, as borrowing things and, and, and having to work to pay those things back, but which is not the, the communal fashion of, of early Christians or of the Essenes. The Dead Sea Scrolls are roughly 25,000 fragments of text found in the late 1940s and early 1950s in several caves near the West Bank. Many of these fragments are quite small. However, a few large scrolls were well-preserved, including copies of Isaiah and Psalms, nearly complete. Copies of Deuteronomy are also well-represented. With their discovery, the Rockefeller family, yeah, they got to get their foot right in there, right? The Rockefeller family funded a museum on the West Bank to house and study the scrolls. Archaeologists and other scholars, many from the United States, Britain, and other Western nations, studied them there until 1967. In the Six-Day War, the Jews seized the West Bank, which had been under the control of Jordan, right? And they shut off all access to the scrolls until after 1992. During this period, 25 years, only select Jewish academics were allowed access to the scrolls. Even shut-out Jews complained, one example being Giza Vermes, a Jewish academic who even wrote about it in his books. So for 25 years, most scholars were totally shut out of access to the Dead Sea Scrolls. By the late 1950s, Most of the fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls had already been transcribed, but they were not yet published. John Strugnell, a professor at the Harvard Divinity School, 
was one of the chief, well, he was the chief editor of the Dead Sea Scrolls publication project. He was also intimately acquainted with the scrolls both before 1967 and again after 1992. He was a young scholar in 1967. He was a language prodigy. Once Strugnall complained of missing scrolls, and he also complained about nefarious deals between certain Israeli academics and antiquities dealers, among other things, he was labeled an anti-Semite. He was accused of being a depressed drunkard, and there was a successful campaign on the part of the Jews to have him removed from his position. This all sounds like typical Jewish treachery, and it is. And for these and various other reasons, I personally would suspect that we certainly do not have all of the information which the Dead Sea Scrolls may have contained. Strugnall reportedly complained of several missing scrolls, including a copy of the Temple Scroll and what was called a complete copy of Enoch. Most of what are now known and published as the Dead Sea Scrolls fall into one of several general categories, which I would generally identify as follows. And these have been categorized by other people in other manners. Copies or translations of biblical books. Two, copies or translations of known, known apocryphal books. Three, sectarian commentaries on biblical books. Four, prayers and prophecies peculiar to the sect that kept the scrolls. Five, scrolls of instruction for and governance of the members of the sect. Each of these categories can be and often are broken down into further subdivisions. There are some other miscellaneous documents, such as the calendrical documents. There, there were a lot of calendrical documents peculiar to the sect. Or the Copper Scroll. The Copper Scroll is a description of buried treasure which the sect supposedly had in various places, which don't really fit into one of the mentioned categories. I'm going to read some, some excerpts from the Copper Scroll. It's many pages. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But, but I'm going to read a few excerpts just so that we get an idea of what it contained, right? I have to take my glasses off to do this. From column one of the Copper Scroll, the Copper Scroll is cataloged as 3Q15, meaning it's catalog number 15 of the scrolls found in the third cave at Qumran. Column one, in the ruin which is in the valley of Akor, under the steps leading to the east, 40 long cubits, a chest of silver and its vessels, with a weight of 17 talents. That, that's a considerable amount of silver, right? In the sepulchral monument, in the third course, 100 gold ingots. In the great cistern of the courtyard of the peristyle, in a hollow floor covered with sediment, in front of the upper opening, 900 talents. In the hill of Colit, ties vessels, flasks, and sacred vestments, 
to the total of tithes and of the treasures, the seventh of the second tithe made unclean, and whatever that means. And its opening lies the edges of the channel from the north, six cubits in the direction of the cave of the ablutions, in the plastered cistern of Manos, going down to the left, at a height of three cubits from the bottom, silver, 40 talents, 40 talents of silver. So, so this is, that this is um, I'll, I'll read one more passage perhaps. This is um, representative of many passages in the Copper Scroll which describe treasure that was hidden, which these people possessed, and they hid it in various places around Palestine and around the temple. In the dovecote, which is on the edge of Natath, measured from its edge, 13 cubits, dig for two, and under seven slabs, four bars of sterine, and, and it's not sure what that is, it may be coins. In the second estate, under the cellar facing to the east, dig for eight cubits and a half, 23 and a half talents. In the cellars of Koran, in the side facing the sea, in the basin, dig for 16 cubits, 22 talents. In the foss, much silver of offering. In the waterfalls, near the edge of the conduit, to the east of their outlet, dig for seven cubits, nine talents. In the cistern, which is north of the mouth of the narrow pass of Beth Tamar, in the rocky ground of Ger Pella, everything which is there is a sacred offering. In the dovecote of the fortress of Nabata, and, and the scroll is, is broken right there, and, and the end of it can't be read. The last passage in, in um, 3Q15, I'll read that, in, in the Copper Scroll. It's called the Copper Scroll, actually, because it's made of copper. Uh, I'll comment on that later. From column 12, five talents of gold, six talents in its west entrance, under the black stone, at its side, this sounds like a, a treasure map that a child would, would just adore, right? At its side, underneath the threshold of the burial chamber, 42 talents. On Mount Gerizim, underneath the staircase of the upper tunnel, a chest in all its vessels, and 60 talents of silver. In the mouth of the spring of Beth Sham, silver vessels and gold vessels for the tithes. In total, 600 talents. In the large conduit of the crypt up to Beth Hakuk, the total of its weight, 71 talents, 20 minus. And the tunnel, which is in YNH, or three letters, we're not sure where that is, I guess, to the north of Colit, which opens towards the north and has graves in its entrance, a copy of this text and its explanation and their measurements and the inventory of everything, item by item. So there is the Copper Scroll, and it's about maybe... Two dozen paragraphs like that in, in what survives of the scroll known as 3Q15. And it's all about all the buried treasure that the Qumran sect supposedly had access to in, in many places throughout Palestine. Not only around the temple, but in many places. The talk of buried treasure in the Copper Scroll may actually have lent fuel to the searches for treasure in Palestine which were later said to have been conducted during the Crusades by groups such as the Knights Templar. Found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, not only does it lend further doubt 
to the Qumran sect's identification as Essenes, who, who eschewed worldly riches, according to Josephus. But it also is evident that of all the scrolls, the only one which was inscribed in copper, which is a most durable material, was this one which kept a record of their treasure. <laughs> so much did they esteem the value of Scripture over the value of mammon. Most of the other scrolls were paper, and some of them were vellum parchments. There is another document known as the Damascus document in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's so-called because of the many prophetic references to Damascus, which it contains, and we see a scripture. Well, we see a scripture in um in the prophets. Early on, I forget exactly which prophet. It may have been Amos or Joel. It wasn't Joel. It must have been Amos. I just did Joel. I can't remember it. Well, well, it it said that I will send you beyond Damascus. And and that's talking about the deportations of the people of Jerusalem. Now, in the Septuagint, I believe it says I will send you to Babylon. There is a difference between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text. And the Damascus document referring to the, the um, captivity, it's believed that that's why the references are there. And, and um, that's, the references are there, so that's why it's called the Damascus document. While these by themselves are not worthy of separate mention, Apart from an examination of the Sectarian literature, which is found among the scrolls, because the Damascus document and, and the scrolls which contain it are very Sectarian in nature, much of this document very closely matched parts of another document which were found in a synagogue in Cairo, which date to as early as the 10th century AD. And therefore, That document from the synagogue in Cairo is often published along with editions of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So the copy found in Cairo is called the Cairo-Damascus document, although that version also contains some passages which are found elsewhere, not at Qumran, but in Jewish rabbinical literature that accompanied it when it was discovered. Therefore, though the, through the Cairo-Damascus document, some of the material found among the Dead Sea Scrolls was known to scholars before the scrolls themselves were discovered. And we also see that the, um, the Dead Sea Scrolls are not the only copy of the material that they contained because... Some Jew, as early as the 10th century, or or from the perspective of the Dead Sea Scrolls, as late as the 10th century AD, some Jew in Cairo had a copy of the Damascus document, which actually contains um, community instructions and and some of the um, items that, that regulated the people in the Qumran sect. Most of the Dead Sea Scrolls are numbered with a catalog number in the fashion of number, Q for Qumran, number, where the first number is the K where the scroll was said to be found, 1 through 11, and the second is a serial number of the scrolls and or fragments from 
each particular cave. Additionally, and, and that's just for your reference, additionally, many of the notable scrolls also have a familiar name, so that we see that the Copper Scroll, which I just read portions of, it's called the Copper Scroll, but it's also known by its catalog, catalog number of 3Q15. The Damascus document, the copy found among the Dead Sea Scrolls actually has a series of catalog numbers beginning in 4Q, and there may be copies of it which were found in other caves, and that's because it was found amongst the whole collection of, of fragments, right? Each fragment is numbered. As for the scrolls of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which contain copies or translations of biblical books, fragments of most of the books from the Old Testament have been found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. There are also fragments of some of the biblical books in Greek, and they are identified with the Septuagint that we know today, which were also found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. So the Qumran community, the Qumran sect were certainly not Hebrew purists. However, at least several of the Greek texts have the tetragrammaton, Yahweh, rather than the word kurios, wherever it appears in the Greek manuscripts, which is more than interesting. Unfortunately, many critical passages, which are disputed in our Bibles, are not represented in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Imagine that. There's been um, several times in, in Genesis, not only in Genesis, but in Jeremiah, and in Isaiah, where, where I can remember actually looking to see what the Dead Sea Scrolls said of a passage and was disappointed that that passage was missing. That doesn't mean that those passages did not exist, but only that those parts of the scrolls disintegrated with time. For instance, Genesis 3.15 all the way through the end of Genesis 4.1 are not found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Imagine that. The beginning of Genesis chapter 6 is also not found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Interestingly, copies of Nehemiah, which I'm not really alarmed at because in the Septuagint originally and, and in certain other copies of the Scripture, Nehemiah and Ezra were kept as one book in a single scroll. And if that was, you know, damaged, and if there weren't a whole lot of copies of it, uh, I could imagine Nehemiah not being there. And and um, not all of Ezra is found in the Dead Sea Scrolls either, so I don't have a problem with that. But also, what we can recognize is Esther has not been found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, quite unscrupulously, there are fragments of documents which are now labeled by the Jews, because they love the book of Esther, right? And they're labeled as proto-Esther. And they were found in the fifth cave at Qumran. These documents mention a Persian king, Darius. They mention several other Persian figures. And they mention one figure, one man, who was identified as a Judean of the captivity in the scroll. However, there is not one phrase, there is not one sentence among these fragments. And these fragments are considerable, that there's several paragraphs. 
There's not one sentence or phrase in these fragments which can identify them with the book of Esther that is found in modern Bibles. So therefore, even though it tells some sort of story which was centered in Persia, in the captivity, the label of proto-Esther for those fragments is quite dishonest. It's Jewish wishful thinking. There is no Esther in the Dead Sea Scrolls. The copies of biblical books which are found among the Dead Sea Scrolls are treated separately by academics from the copies of all the other literature found at Qumran. And they have often been published separately. In my estimate, this is probably because most academics are already quite familiar with the biblical literature. And the non-biblical literature which was found would arouse a greater interest among scholars. And therefore, it is usually published separately. In fact, it was a long time before any translations of the biblical books found at Qumran were published at all because all of the academics involved had concentrated on the non-biblical books and what they said. Even if the Dead Sea Scrolls contained all Old Testament scripture, even if it agreed with the King James 100% or with the Septuagint 100%, it could still not be considered an easy elixir for use in resolving biblical difficulties and disputes which surround many of our texts. And I will give one example in this instance. And that's where many, there are many disputes over chronology. Some argue, after the Masoretic text, that the time which the children of Israel spent in Egypt in captivity alone was 430 years from Jacob to the Exodus, from Jacob's going down to Egypt to the Exodus. Others, and in my opinion, this is the wiser group, argue that the time from the call of Abraham unto the Exodus, from this call of Abraham, that, that's, there's a lot of time between the call of Abraham and Jacob's going down to Egypt, right? They argue that from the time of the call of Abraham to the Exodus was a total of 430 years. This was the opinion given by Paul when he stated in Galatians chapter 3, Now to Abraham the promises have been given, and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings as of many, meaning, meaning the sons of Esau, Keturah, and Ishmael, but as of one, meaning Jacob only, and to your offspring which are anointed. Now I say this, a covenant validated beforehand by God, the law which arrived after 430 years does not invalidate by which the promise is left idle. What Paul is doing is he's telling us that from the time the promise was made to Abraham, which was what we consider the call of Abraham when he was told to go to the land of Canaan and, and leave Haran, his homeland, from that time to Mount Sinai was 430 years. Now, the people that argue that the, that the Israelites spent 430 years in Egypt alone, they use the Masoretic text and the Dead Sea Scrolls as supports for their argument. 
While the people that argue that it was 430 years from the call of Abraham to Mount Sinai use Paul, the Septuagint, Josephus, and also the Samaritan Pentateuch as support for their side of the argument. So this is just one example in the differences between the scrolls and, and many of the ancient texts and, and where they fall, right? I'll read the King James Version of Exodus 1240. Now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. That's all it says. It leads one to believe that the children of Israel spent 430 years in Egypt alone. And all of the, all of the Bibles, all of the modern Bibles, because they're all based on a Masoretic text, right? It doesn't matter if you have the New Living Translation, if you have um, the AV, the ASV, the... the, the it doesn't matter. They, they all have that at Exodus 1240. Now, usually the Dead Sea Scrolls agree in, in many places with, where there's differences between the, the King James Version based on the Masoretic text and the Septuagint. Usually the Dead Sea Scrolls are found to agree with the Septuagint. More often than not, here they agree with the Masoretic text. And the Dead Sea Scrolls version of Exodus 1240 says, Now that the time that the children of Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt was 430 years. It, it's the same, except for a small, two small ellipses where, where letters are missing. It, it's the same as the King James Version, basically, in, in English. The Septuagint version of Exodus 1240, and I quote, And the sojourning of the children of Israel while they sojourned in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, which includes the time from the, fall, from the call of Abraham until the time that Jacob went to Egypt, right? And the land of Canaan was 430 years. So we see basically the differences that the Masoretic text and the Dead Sea Scrolls are missing those words and the land of Canaan. Now I'm going to read from Josephus. Now Josephus is... And this is to show that there was already a divergence in Hebrew manuscripts, right? And there were already many divergences in Hebrew manuscripts by the first century A.D. And we in Christian identity surely know who was probably behind that one, right? But well, here's from Josephus' Antiquities. This is found in Book 2, Chapter 15. It's two... 318 in the um, in the Harvard numbering system. They left Egypt in the month of Xanthicus. Now Josephus is cop is translating the Hebrew into Greek, right? So he's using a Greek month. On the fifteenth day of the lunar month, four hundred and thirty years after our forefather Abraham came into the land of Canaan. So Josephus agrees with the Septuagint and with Paul, even though. Josephus was translating his Greek from a Hebrew manuscript that he possessed. So we see that the Dead Sea Scrolls Hebrew and Josephus's Hebrew were already different. There were already divergences. And many others could probably be pointed out if we wanted to sit and, and waste our time doing that. And I consider it not really worth our time because most of the differences are just trite, right? Most of them are. That they really don't matter to the bottom line of our faith one, one iota. 
They left Egypt in the month of Xanticus on the 15th day of the lunar month, 430 years after our forefather Abraham came into Canaan, but 215 years only after Jacob moved into Egypt. So Josephus reckoned the time from Jacob going to Egypt to the time of the Exodus is 215 years. And, and that's, that, that's, um, that, that can be disputed, but it's accurate enough for reality. It, it really is. It's good enough for all of our needs, and Josephus is pretty darn close. Not, not that I'm perfect, but, but um, I think I have 180 years, but that really doesn't matter. And I have my own chronology. It's buried in my notes, and I don't have it. Um, I, I'm sorry I don't have it available at my fingertips. It's not in my computer yet. We see the difficulty in relying upon one text or another by itself for the truth. And the folly in choosing a referee from the plain reading of the text alone. Context, the context of the entire Bible, that should be our first referee in these matters. Now, examining, and if, you know, a lot of people want to take the text at face value, they choose their favorite text, the King James only crowd, right? How foolish they are. And, um, and run with it, and they kind of root for their text like they root for a football team, right? Or they root for their Bible version like they root for a runner in a race or, or a race car driver. It's ridiculous. It's a very childish attitude. I don't have a Bible. My Bible is all these books. I want to study all of these books so that I could then make a determination from context and, and, and from the preponderance of the, of the evidence to see or, or to try to arrive at something close to the truth, right? Context, the context of the entire Bible must always be our first referee in, in all of these matters. Examining the generations. If you sit down and you read the, the book of Numbers, the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Chronicles, the book of Exodus, examining the generations with Jacob when they entered into Egypt, and the intermittent genealogies along with the lists of the generations which, of the people which emerged from Egypt, we see that only seven or eight generations had elapsed during the entire sojourn in Egypt. We see that four of those seven or eight generations actually took part in the Exodus. So only three generations had passed away during that time, had died during that time. From Moses, who at 80 years old was among the eldest of them, down to the youngest infants recorded as having been already born, only four generations of, of, of Hebrews left Egypt in the Exodus. Moses was the great-grandson of Levi. Three generations after Levi, right? And at 80 years of age, when the Exodus began, we see a total of no more than seven or eight generations from Levi to the Exodus. Genesis 46.11 tells us that three of Levi's sons were already born when Levi went to Egypt with his father. So Levi was by no means a child. All of this is consistent with the words of Paul and the words of Josephus and with Josephus's calculation of 215 years of the sojourn in Egypt and not with those 
who maintain that all 430 years represented the time in Egypt alone because that's what the Masoretic text says, and that's what the Dead Sea Scrolls say. And we see four witnesses which tell us the contrary. So, so we, we, we have to take the text. We can't take any text at face value. The Dead Sea Scrolls is not, in, in a lot of cases, going to solve any arguments for us whatsoever. Well, with the Dead Sea, they have a value, the biblical books of the Dead Sea Scrolls. They have a value because they show us that these things have to be examined more deeply when we see conflicts with the Masoretic text in chronology or history. And, and we just can't pick a Bible and say, that's the one I'm going to go with. I like that one. That, that's just crazy, right? Also among the Dead Sea Scrolls, copies or translations of known apocryphal books. Fragments of books such as Jubilees. Yes, Jubilees, but not, it, it's not necessarily the Jubilees that we know from, from um, the Ethiopic, which Charles has translated, because it's very few fragments of Jubilees. And, and um, it's been a long time since I've read Jubilees, but they don't. Um, evidently, they may not, it, it's not definite that they support the chronology of Jubilees the way it's presented in the Ethiopic book of Jubilees. But there are fragments of Jubilees, fragments of Tobit, fragments of the astronomical writings attributed to Enoch, fragments of the testaments of the patriarchs, the 12 patriarchs and other patriarchs in addition to the 12 patriarchs like um, Kahat, who is one of the sons of Levi. And there are fragments of just about all of what we know as the Enoch literature found amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, now the Enoch literature, when I say that, I mean one Enoch is actually a collection of several books, and this has long been recognized by scholars. And when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, that was affirmed. Because the Dead Sea Scrolls, they don't have one book of one Enoch. That They have a book of Enoch, but they, they have the sections that, of, of some of Enoch that we know today is all one book. Those sections are actually broken out. Because one Enoch not only consists of Enoch, but it consists of a book called the Book of Noah, which we see as one section in our modern one Enoch. It has a book called the Book of Giants, which we see as another section of our Book of Enoch. And, and the Book One Enoch, as we know it, is really originally probably either four or five books, and, and maybe six. I, I, I'm not 100% positive, and I don't, it can be argued how many, but that there were actually several divisions in several different books and several different writing styles in what we know as one Enoch, and they were written in several different times. Of course, we know that Enoch really couldn't have written anything about the time after the flood, right? Because he just wasn't there, according to the Old Testament. So, so um, one Enoch is really a collection of several books, and they're broken out in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, now in the book, one, one interesting thing about the Book of Giants in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and, and it's, uh, I, I would admit that it's probably, it's almost certainly in a, a later emendation, is that Gilgamesh is mentioned in the Book of Giants in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is awfully odd, right? 
There are also many apocryphal works and, and even a couple that I had not seen in other sources before I found them in the Dead before I recognized them in the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? Before I first read about them in the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's a lot of apocryphal literature in the Dead Sea Scrolls. However, the, the, the existence of these works, these apocryphal books in the scrolls, is not by itself a sign of their canonicity. We cannot lose sight of the fact that these scrolls are a part of the library of just one sect in Judea at a time and in the first, century, first two centuries B.C. and in the first several centuries A.D. that there was a large volume of spurious writing which was produced and, and which men had tried to pass off as scripture. That There's little doubt of that. We must realize that these scrolls are just one library of one sect in Judea, and that sect is not necessarily any better than the other sects which we know had their own problems and disputes over the legitimacy of various religious writings. These books have value. It, it's, it's very good and very beneficial that they are preserved, and we do get to see what they say, but they surely are not all canonical, and, and actually the apocryphal books, uh, I, I would admit that the majority of them are not canonical. The third type of scroll found in the Dead Sea Scrolls are sectarian commentaries on biblical books, and there are a lot of them. There were many commentaries and expansions of biblical books found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. The most famous of these is probably the Genesis Apocryphon. The Genesis Apocryphon is a retelling of the Genesis account with many elaborations. Now, now the Genesis Apocryphon is not canonical. All the Genesis Apocryphon does for us is it reveals to us how one sect in Judea viewed the book of Genesis, how they understood it, and how they interpreted it. Apocryphon is the singular of the word that we know as apocrypha, right? Apocrypha is a plural word. Apocryphon means secret writing or hidden writing. That, that's all it means. And the Dead Sea Scrolls, the, the people that kept the Dead Sea Scrolls were, were the keepers or the writers or possibly only the keepers of, of many apocryphal books. Not, this, not books from the King James Apocrypha, but secret writings, meaning, meaning writings that were made privately, but which um, have come, to, come into light. That's why we call them Apocrypha. I'm going to... Um, there was also the... Habakkuk Pesher is one good example of the Peshers. There were many Peshers among the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Peshers are commentaries on the biblical books, and several of them are found. I'm going to read from the Habakkuk Pesher. I've quoted from the Genesis Apocryphon recently in my presentation on Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And in, there, in that presentation, we saw the the many embellishments which were added to the text and, and conversations that Lamech had over the birth, being concerned over the birth of Noah and, and the actions of the giants 
And that, that gives us some flavor of what the Apocryphon were all about. They were elaborate retellings of Scripture, and they were, um, that there were many emendations and additions written into them, which only served to tell us how those people felt about and how they interpreted the actual biblical books. Here I'm going to read from um, 4Q252. This is from the um, the Habakkuk Pesher, just so that we get an idea of what the Peshers were about. And the Dead Sea Scrolls writers had taken the the minor prophets and well, well, all of the prophets I believe had had fragments of Peshers, or, or just about all of them, fragments of Peshers were found for. And and we'll discuss more of this later, where we get to the War Scroll. But the, the Qumran sect had made these peshers and interpreted the minor prophets to fit their own time and, and the way that they thought prophecies were going to unfold. This is from column eight of, of the Habakkuk press, of, of the Habakkuk, the pesher on Habakkuk, the commentary on Habakkuk. And they would read a section of scripture, and this is for Habakkuk chapter two. And this says, its interpretation concerns all observing the law in the house of Judah, whom God will free from the house of judgment on account of their toil and of their loyalty to the teacher of righteousness. We're going to talk at length later on in this presentation about the teacher of righteousness. Surely wealth will corrupt the boaster, and not will he last. He who widens his throat like the abyss, and he like death cannot be satisfied. All the peoples ally against him. All the nations come together against him. Are they not all going to chant verses against him, explaining riddles at his expense? They shall say, ah, one who amasses the wealth of others. This sounds like they're talking about a Jew, right? How long will he load himself with debts? Its interpretation concerns the wicked priest who was called loyal at the start of his office. However, when he ruled over Israel, his heart became proud. He deserted God and betrayed the laws for the sake of riches. And he robbed and hoarded wealth from the violent men who had rebelled against God. And he seized public money, incurring additional serious sin. And he performed repulsive acts by every type of defiling impurity. Will not suddenly your creditors get up, and those who shake you up, you will be their prey since you pillaged Many peoples, all the rest of the nations, will pillage you. The interpretation of the word concerns the priest who rebelled, the precepts of God. And, and this is from the commentary on Habakkuk 2, verses 4 through 7. And, and that's that they've taken these... Um, that they've taken these minor prophets and they've interpreted them that they've really... It, it's a really... Um, that they're really rewriting them, in, in my purview, and in a way that fits their own times. Another verse on, on Habakkuk 2, 7, and 8 says, However, in the last days, their riches and their loot will be given into the hands of the army of the Kittim. And, and that army of the Kittim, that's a popular representation in the Dead Sea Scrolls for the Romans, and I will get into that shortly in this presentation. 
So that's basically pieces of the Habakkuk Pesher, and, and we're going to give more citations from, from some of them later on concerning the teacher of righteousness and the wicked priest. I have an example from the commentary on Genesis. Now, there was a Genesis Apocryphon, which was a rewriting of Genesis, and then there was a commentary on Genesis, and this is so that we understand the, the, um, the sectarian commentaries which are found in the Dead Sea Scrolls and have at least some semblance of, of what they contain. This is from column one of the commentary on Genesis, the fragment labeled 4Q252. In the year 400, and, and this will help clear up, it, it helps show us their understanding of the Hebrew of Genesis chapter 6, right? In the year 480 of Noah's life, Noah reached the end of them. And God said, my spirit will not reside in man forever. Their days shall be fixed at 120 years until the end of the waters of the flood. And the waters of the flood burst over the earth. In the year 600 of Noah's life, in the second month, on the first day of the week, on its 17th day, the 17th day of the month, on that day all the springs of the great abyss were split, and the sluices of the sky opened and rain fell upon the earth, 40 days and 40 nights. So there we have it, and that's an interpretation of the Masoretic text that I personally have also often given that, that the 120 years of Genesis chapter 6, well, well, many people say, oh, so men should leave, live for 120 years. But, well, no, that's not what it's saying. It's saying that from the time that God warned Noah, he had 120 years to build the ark until the flood. That's the way the um, Qumran sect understood the Hebrew. And, and so some of the commentaries can be considered to be useful but I would never use them to, to create or, or to support a, a private interpretation that we can't see or, or understand from the Scripture the way it is. Throughout the biblical expansions and commentaries of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we see references to a figure called, among other things, the Teacher of Righteousness. There are also references to the Wicked Priest, and the spreader of the lie, or similar epithets. Many fools, including mainstream academics, have tried to identify these figures with certain historical persons. Now, on occasion, that may be done, as we just saw with, in the Habakkuk commentary, allusions to a certain priest who must have been the priest at the time that the Pesher was written. However, these names appear throughout all biblical contexts throughout the Dead Sea Scrolls commentaries, from the days of the ancient histories and the prophets all the way up to the period in which the scrolls were written. Rather than pointing to any particular historical figures, these figures instead represented the ideas of justice and injustice, they represented the ideas of truth and lies, they represented good people in the world at any particular time, and bad people in the world at any particular time. These epithets didn't represent one particular person. 
they represented different peoples at different times. Sometimes they represented or seemed to represent God himself and what they viewed as Satan himself. As they manifest themselves in the world at particular times through the hands of men in general. So, so we can't say that the Dead Sea Scrolls teacher of righteousness is John the Baptist. That's not true. And people have said that. We can't, see, we can't say that the spreader of the lie in the Dead Sea Scrolls was Paul of Tarsus. And that's crazy. And people have said that. The scrolls mention a spreader of the lie in the Pesher to Micah in 1Q14. A teacher of lies in the Pesher of Isaiah. A man of the lie, as we just saw, in Habakkuk. And a man of lies in the Pesher to Psalms. In addition to the mentions of a wicked priest, which are in what which we just saw in Habakkuk. These peshers, or pesharim is the correct plural in Hebrew, these peshers, interpretations of Old Testament books, are the only places in the Dead Sea Scrolls where these terms are found. They're not found in the prayers. They're not found in the copies of Scripture. They're not found in the sectarian books. They're only in the instructional books of the sect or any of the other types of books, they're only found in the Peshers, which are the interpretations of the prophets. And these are hardly viable evidence identifying any historical figure in particular in the context in which they appear. Here we shall investigate some of these other instances where these epithets are found. 1Q14 contains parts of an interpretation of Micah chapter 1. This is from fragments 8 through 10. What are the high places of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? I will reduce Samaria to a country ruin, to a plot of vines. And then the pesher, the, the writer, the interpreter says, its interpretation concerns the spreader of the lie who has misdirected the symbol. Now, in the context of Micah, Micah is talking about the coming destruction of Israel by the Assyrians. So where God says, I will reduce Samaria to a country ruin, the people of the Pesher are talking about this concerning the spreader of the lie who has misdirected the symbol. We see that the people were deceived the people were deceived by their kings in, in the time of Micah. They were led off into paganism. They had given up the worship of Yahweh at Jerusalem. They were worshiping the golden calf. And, and that's the context that this epithet spreader of the lie exists in. So the spreader of the lie in this instance was operating in the days before the Assyrian conquest of Israel. So therefore, the epithet cannot be taken to mean some historical figure in the time of the writers of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we will be able to date the Dead Sea Scrolls. That will be done shortly, when exactly they were written. 4Q171 contains parts of an interpretation of Psalm 37. From column one, and I quote, 
The arrogant ones choose, who love slovenliness and misdirect wickedness at the hands of Ephraim. Be silent before Yahweh and wait for him. Do not be annoyed with one who has success, with someone who hatches plots. And then the Pisharim says, its interpretation concerns the man of lies who misdirected many with deceptive words. So here it should be fully manifest that the epithets, spreader of the lie, or man of lies, as used in the Dead Sea Scrolls, cannot possibly be referring, as many scholars try to claim, to any more recent historical figure, meaning a, a historical figure alive in the days that the writers of the Dead Sea Scrolls were alive, and we can date them. Unless one wants to believe that that figure was alive in the days of Micah, where Micah says he misdirected the people of Samaria, and that figure was alive in the days of David, where it was interpreted that that figure misdirected the children of Ephraim in the days of David, writing the psalm. Even academics who make these claims try to say that the wicked priest or the man of lies was a figure from the period of the Maccabees or even the Roman period and the time of Herod. Yet, upon examination, that's found to be false. Often, in these very same pressures, these very same commentaries, this liar is contrasted to the teacher of righteousness. We saw that moments ago when I quoted from the pressure on Habakkuk. It is clear in other pressures that this teacher of righteousness is no contemporary man or sect leader. The teacher of righteousness is not somebody walking around in the time that the Dead Sea Scrolls are written. It is rather an epithet for the expected Messiah, as we see in the Pesher to Isaiah in 4Q165, which contains an interpretation of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11. And I quote, This interpretation of the word concerns the teacher of righteousness who reveals just teachings. Since the Qumran sect had not yet met their Messiah and knew nothing of Christ, the Qumran sect knew nothing of Jesus Christ, Yahshua Christ, their liar cannot be Paul of Tarsus, as many of the Paul bashers in Christian identity have claimed. Rather, it is clear from the context of the Peshers that the spreader of the lie or the man of lies or the man of the lie is another epithet for Satan or the adversary, as we see in Genesis chapter 3, John chapter 8. In all fairness, no other identification could possibly be made within the context which the scrolls themselves provide. And it's not clear from the writers of the Dead Sea Scrolls that they saw Satan as a racial entity. That's not clear either, and, and, and we'll have time to mention that later. While in other instances the epithet teacher of righteousness indicates a much, early pro, a much earlier prophet or leader of the people, and, and we see that in the Damascus document, where the epithet occurs in, in, in um, 42266, which is part of what's known as the Damascus document. Yet since these certainly do not refer to Christ, and they do not refer to John the Baptist, and, and there are some 
wayward pseudo-Christian cults who also claim that the teacher of righteousness refers to John the Baptist, we don't see that in Habakkuk. It has to refer to somebody much earlier than John the Baptist. It has to refer to somebody in the Pesher to Habakkuk. The teacher of righteousness has to refer to somebody who is alive in the time of Habakkuk, 400 years before, maybe 500 years before John the Baptist. But the circus clowns, which um, are at a certain... um, what well, well, so-called well, well, it's not really Christian identity. It's really a Hebrew roots movement organization led by Joseph Jeffers. And I have seen people in Christian identity quoting and following Joseph Jeffers, who claimed that the teacher of righteousness in the Dead Sea Scrolls was John the Baptist, and he was the Messiah, and he really lived about a hundred years earlier than the than the crucifixion, than the time of of Christ. And I've actually seen that quoted in identity by people that really should have known better, and, and they buy that garbage. It, it's just nuts. The Dead Sea Scrolls, when we read all of the passages concerning the teacher of righteousness, we know that it's a reference to the Messiah. Read John chapter 3, the woman at the well, or I'm sorry, John chapter 4, the woman at the well says, I know that when Messiah comes, he will teach us all things. That's what she says. It's right in John. That was the the teacher of righteousness was an epithet used by certain religious sects, the Qumran sects being one of them, for the expected Messiah. The um, Qumran sects had a different idea of the of their Messiah that than the apostles had and and that Christ had, right? And we'll get to that too. The Dead Sea Scrolls and their translations were kept under wraps for decades in fear that they would, and I've seen this repeated by a lot of people even in Christian identity, shake the foundations of Western religion. Is a frequently repeated but blatant lie which cannot be substantiated. The scrolls were first discovered in 1947, and they were collected and deposited in a museum in the West Bank region of Palestine, where for 20 years they were studied by Western scholars. And photographs were made of all the scrolls and fragments before 1967. In 1967, during the Six-Day War, when the Jews seized control of the West Bank, it was they who seized control of the museum that the scrolls were housed in, having restricted access to all but a few select of their own scholars, well, so-called scholars. In the early 1990s, the Jews again began to grant access to the scrolls to others. I guess they had 25 years to go through them, right? This story is well known. It can be found in books such as The Complete Dead Sea Scrolls in English by Giza Vermez, who was a Jew, who was also denied access to the scrolls during the 25-year period in which they were restricted, and he was quite bitter about it. It is hardly conceivable that the Jews would cut off access to the scrolls in order to protect Christianity. That, that They would never do that, right? And books about the scrolls and their contents had already been published by 1967. There was a book entitled Scrolls from the Dead Sea by Edmund Wilson in 1955. If anything, the Jews would only want to make certain that nothing could get out 
which expose the lies which they tell about themselves to the frauds which they are. That I would more quickly believe than um, any of the Jewish stories about shaking the foundations of Western religion. The scrolls certainly don't do anything like that. The fourth part of uh, the, the fourth um, categorization I have for Dead Sea Scrolls are prayers and prophecies peculiar to the sect that kept the scrolls, or perhaps wrote the scrolls. There were many prayers, incantations, songs, and similar writings found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. All also found is um, it is a collection of wisdom literature. Now. The wisdom literature of the Dead Sea Scrolls sometimes reads more like a legalistic guide for daily life rather than like the inspired wisdom books of the Bible or, or the inspired wisdom books, I believe they're inspired, uh, of the Apocrypha and the Septuagint, the, the wisdom of Solomon and the wisdom of Sirach. Among the many items of interest are incantations, which show a racial awareness, however, that racial awareness does not seem to have been reflected in the sect's writings or actions concerning their own times. And, and I, of course, I can't cite that because I, I don't have any examples of something that, that, that just isn't there, right? I'm going to read from 4Q444. This is an incantation, and I'm probably going to read the – it's short, so I'm going to read the whole thing. <clears throat> it's very fragmentary, right? There's a lot of ellipses. And I belong to those who fear God. He opened my mouth with his true knowledge and from his Holy Spirit, ellipses. And they became spirits of dispute in my build. The precept of, ellipses, the innards of the flesh, a spirit of knowledge and understanding, truth and justice did God place in my heart. And another ellipses. And be strong in the precepts of God and in battling the spirits of iniquity and not, and... Now from fragment two, yes, it ended abruptly. The wailing cry, and this starts in the middle of the sentence, the wailing cries of her mourning, I will subdue, and then there's an ellipsis, the truth and the justice, afflictions and until its dominions, dominions are complete, ellipses, those who inspire him fear, all the spirits of the bastards and the spirits of uncleanness. So we see from that second fragment that there is a racial awareness that we also saw in the Enoch literature of the Dead Sea Scrolls when I presented my paper, The Problem with Genesis 6, 1 through 4, um, last week, last week or the week before, the, the week before last. And um, we've also seen it in, in the Genesis Apocryphon and, and, and other Dead Sea Scrolls literature. So that's one incantation, or, or one scroll labeled as an incantation. And I'm going to read another incantation, and this one's pretty interesting. This is an example of an incantation for exorcism, although it too is highly fragmentary, and, and I'll read the entire thing. From 42560, fragment one, column one. And heart and, it starts in the middle of a sentence, <clears throat> and then there's an ellipses, and it says the midwife, the chastisement of girls, and then it says evil visitor, and an ellipses, who enters the flesh, the male penetrator and the female penetrator, 
ellipses. Iniquity and guilt, fever and chills, and heat of the heart, ellipses. In sleep, he who crushes the male and she who passes through the female, those who dig, and, and then there's an ellipsis and it says wicked and, and it's broken. And, and then fragment one of column two, before him, before him and, and I, O spirit, adjure. And that's adjure. The Greek word is exorchizo, and that's the word that we get exorcist from, right? Is from exorchizo, which means in Greek to adjure. It's somebody who adjures spirits. O spirit, adjure. I enchant you, O spirit, on the earth, in the clouds. And there are other examples of... of um, Exorcism literature in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And, and this is somewhat valuable to Christians because exorcism is mentioned or, or the adjuring of spirits is mentioned in the book of Acts. And we see that it shows that all, the, all of the talk concerning possession by demons is not limited to, to the New Testament accounts alone. We find it in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, for a major example of the prophetic writings found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, the major example is the War Scroll. And, and this has been taken out of, out of context many times by people in Christian identity. And, and that's pretty sad, because a lot of people have taken ideas found in the War Scroll, and they've run with them. The War Scroll talks about the children of light. The War Scroll talks about the children of darkness. People in Christian identity have seen that, and they, they've thought to themselves, they must have, from the result it's evident, they've thought to themselves, oh, this is a war between the children of light and the children of darkness. This must be a war between the two seeds of Genesis 3.15 that it's talking about. Well, well, that's just not true. It's not true one bit, even though the scrolls use those terms. The Qumran sect applied those terms quite differently than we in Christian identity would apply them. That's just the way it is. That might burst some bubbles, but, but that's just the truth, right? The War Scroll is found in the scrolls marked 4Q491 through 4Q497, that's where most of the fragments of it are found, and the most complete ones. It's also found in some of the other Qumran scrolls, which were found in other caves. The War Scroll is entirely peculiar, as far as we know from all literature, to the Qumran sect. I've read the entire War Scroll. My assessment of it is that it was written by a vain and a false prophet, who describe a grandiose apocalyptic scenario depicting a final battle between the remnant of Israel and Palestine and what it calls the Empire of the Kittim, which was the name that the sect gave to the Romans. Now, now a little background on that, right? The Kittim, Kittim, what was, um, they, they were descendants in Genesis chapter 10. They were descendants of Javan. Now, Javan, we know from ancient literature, represents the Ionian Greeks, descendants of the Japhethites, right, of Japheth. 
So the Kidim are descendants of the Ionians who are descendants of Japheth in Genesis chapter 10, right? Now we know that the Kidim are, are, are white Aryan people by nature, that they're, um, according to Genesis chapter 10, they are among the original inhabitants of the island, which we know today as Cyprus, okay? So because they're connected with Cyprus, it's apparent to me that the, um, the Qumran sect envisioned their relationship to the Romans and to the other people of the Mediterranean. So they called the Roman Empire the Empire of the Kittim. There are many times in the Dead Sea Scrolls where the Empire of the Kittim, without doubt, and it always does, without a doubt it represents the Roman Empire. And this is spelled out in, in many of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the context. So Empire of the Kidim, that tells us when the Dead Sea Scrolls were dated, and I'll get to that in a minute. The War Scroll was written by a vain and false prophet who described a grandiose apocalyptic scenario. depicting a final battle between the remnant of Israel and Palestine, which they saw as themselves, and the empire of the Kittim, which was the name that the sect gave to the Romans, which was also sometimes called the empire of Belial. This battle was to end with the aggrandizement of the remnant of Israel, which they saw as their own sect, in other words, they were waiting for the, for the last days at, at that time, right? That they were um, stocking up and, and, and getting ready for battle at that time, right? That's the attitude of a lot of people in Christian identity today. I'm not saying it's not going to come to pass. I just want to show how long these thoughts have been around. They saw the battle between themselves and the empire of the Kittim, to end with the aggrandizement of themselves and with the fall and the destruction of Rome. The sect interpreted parts of Isaiah chapter 10 in the same manner. And that's spelled out in, in the scroll known as 4Q161, which I won't quote here. Since the Qumran sect seemed to know nothing of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD. And their literature even mentions the city on several occasions. We see it mentioned in 4Q504. The war scroll requires a dating for the Qumran sect, somewhere between Pompey's conquest of Judea, where Judea was first subjected to Rome, and the revolt from Rome beginning about 65 A.D., which resulted in Jerusalem's destruction in 70 A.D. So the, the Dead Sea Scrolls must date, that all of the sectarian literature in the Dead Sea Scrolls must date to that period, well, which is about 132 years. And it's during that same period that we saw the coming of Christ, the crucifixion, and the beginning of Christianity, which the Dead Sea Scrolls often, uh, always, absolutely seem to be ignorant of, and I will establish that also. 
since the scrolls lack any mention of contemporary historical figures by their actual names or specific historic events, I don't know personally anything by which the scrolls can be dated more precisely. They are definitely dated to, be, to that 132-year period between uh, about um, 68, I believe it was, B.C. and 65 A.D., or, or, or roughly some period equivalent to that. But the Dead Sea Scrolls were definitely created in that time period, probably towards the earlier part of it. There was a fourth large sect in Judea, <clears throat> and, and we see from the War Scroll that the um, what we see from the War Scroll that the Qumran sect is very much anti-Roman. There was a fourth large sect in Judea, the sect of Judas the Galilean, and we don't hear too much of this sect, but Josephus said that this sect was noted, he describes them, and we're going to quote that, this sect was noted for their refusal to heed any authority but God, and also for inspiring revolt from Rome. Josephus describes them in Antiquities Book 18, in Chapter 1 of Antiquities Book 18. This description is in such agreement with the Qumran sect's apocalyptic documents that this sect is as good a candidate for Qumran as the Essenes. Actually, this sect is a much better candidate for the Qumran sect than the Essenes are. A much better candidate. This is from Josephus's Antiquities. Chapter 18, lines 23 through 25. But of the fourth sect of Jewish or Judean philosophy, <clears throat> Judas the Galilean was the author. These men agree in all other things with the Pharisaic notions, but they have an inviolable attachment to liberty and say that God is to be their only ruler and Lord. They also do not value dying any kinds of death, nor indeed do they heed the deaths of their relatives and friends. Nor can any such fear make them call any man Lord. And since this immovable revolution of, resolution of theirs is well known to a great many people, I shall speak no further about that manner, nor am I afraid that anything I have said of them should be disbelieved. But rather fear what I have said is beneath the resolution they show when they undergo pain. It was in Gessius Florus's time that the nation began to grow mad with this distemper. I think Gessius Florus was probably about 60 or 62 AD, right? A few years before the beginning of the revolt. Who was our procurator and who occasioned the Judeans to go wild with it by the abuse of his authority, and to make them revolt from the Romans. So maybe it was more like 62 to 65. And these are the sects of Judean philosophy. So we see that this, this sect led by Judas the Galilean was very anti-Roman and, and may even have instigated the, uh, the war with the Romans, as Josephus infers here. 
The authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls were not only vehemently anti-Roman, as Josephus describes this fourth sect in Judea, but they also agreed with the Pharisees in many religious aspects. Now, they held the two Messiah belief that the Talmudists had from the earliest times. That's evident in the scroll known as 1Q, Rule of the Community, and other documents. The Dead Sea Scrolls sect held the belief in the two Messiahs that we see later in the Talmud. Not the two comings of one Messiah that Christians believe, but in the belief in two separate Messiahs. Now, in the Talmud, and Kutzen Emmerheiser is written on this, in his um, Ephraim Skepter heresy, in the Talmud it is stated that um, there would be a Messiah from the tribe of Joseph, and then a a suffering Messiah, and then a conquering Messiah from the tribe of Judah. So so we see some of the roots of of the Ephraim Skepta heresy. Well, well, the Dead Sea Scrolls held, they, they didn't spell it out to that degree, but that comes from the Talmud, but the Dead Sea Scrolls sect did have a belief in two messiahs. The sect of the Dead Sea Scrolls also held the same views on the Sabbath, which Christ upbraided the Pharisees for, among other things. And and we will get to that before this presentation ends. For these reasons, I am persuaded that this fourth sect of the Judeans, among the other reasons I have listed here, was responsible for the Dead Sea Scrolls. The fifth sort of my fifth categorization of, of scrolls in the Dead Sea Scrolls are the scrolls of instruction and governance of the members of the sect. The Damascus document, which is related to the various copies of the documents entitled Rule of the Community, and, and there are many of them, and several other documents all fall into this category. There's another set of scrolls which belong to a document that's simply called instruction, which I've already cited here, which contains um, legalistic instructions for the governance of the people in the community. These are a value if one wishes to understand the religious rituals and the ordinances of the sect. Additionally, there were legal documents found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, and, and such as accounts of grain and livestock, or acknowledgments of debts or exchanges, they show ownership, right? Which means that these people really probably are not Essenes. And they were found among the documents at Qumran. There were also scrolls containing instructions for religious purposes, such as the ritual of purification scrolls. And, and there were a whole collection, of, a small collection of them having to do with purification from sin, purica- the purification of women, and, and certain other types of purific- ritual purification. In the ritual of purification scrolls, ritual cleansing and baptism is also found, as it is in early Greek texts. And I've, well, when I did my paper, Baptism in What?, talking about the lack of a need for Christian baptism, I cited Aeschylus, the 5th century B.C. tragic poet, who gave... Um, instances, who who described instances of people being cleansed from sin in the running water of rivers, right? So we do see that in early Greek writing, that idea of 
of immersion in water as cleansing us in sin. And here I'm going to read um, 4Q414. And this scroll, it's short and it's also fragmentary. And um, I'm going to read the whole thing. And this is from fragment one of column two. And it says, and this is going to be fragmentary, so please suffer with me. My, my point will be made by the time I get to the end of it. And he will reply and say, Blessed, ellipses, the pure ones of the periods of your light. And there's an ellipses, a long one would be your right in the middle of it, the word your. And to atone for us according to your will, to be pure in your presence continuously, in every word, to purify oneself before ellipses. You have made us, and, and then fragment. The, the fragments of column two, fragment two, which is, contains column two, and you will purify him according to your holy laws for the first, the third, and the seventh in the truth of your covenant to purify oneself from the impurity of, and afterwards he will enter the water. And, and there's some ellipses in, in between those phrases. And he will reply and say, Blessed are you, God of Israel. Because from what issues from your mouth, the purification of all has been defined. So we see the idea of purification and the man who will enter into the water, right? From fragment 7, column 2, his clothes in the water, ellipses, and he will bless, blessed are you, God of Israel, who, ellipses, before you all from your holiness, not have forsaken you with, with, with several ellipses. And from fragment 10, for you to a pure people, and it started in the middle of a sentence, ellipses, and I too, ellipses, today when, ellipses, in the periods of purification, ellipses, together, ellipses, during the purifications of Israel, and they will sit, and it will happen on a day of, a woman, and give thanks, and that's a very fragmentary text. And then the final fragment, fragment 12, for you made, and then an ellipsis, your will to purify oneself before you, and he established for him a regulation of atonement. And he will wash in water and sprinkle upon, and afterwards he will come back purifying his people with the water which washes. And we see in these fragments, in several of these fragments, we see a ritual purification of sin or from sin in water. That is baptism as we saw in, 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 in the Greek manuscripts, in, in the early Greek and the tragic poets, and, and we also see that idea in, in the cleansing of John the Baptist, don't we? So, so now we know that that certainly was within the cultural context of pre-Christian Judea. There's another scroll discussing rituals that lends us insight to parts of the Bible. And that's um, 4QMMT. And I'm not going to quote from it here. 4QMMT. MMT is um, the name that this scroll achieved or, or was given after an acronym of Hebrew words, which means to abbreviate the phrase, which means in English, some of the works of the law. So this scroll is named 4Q, Some of the Works of the Law. 
It describes the rituals of the Old Testament. Sacrifice rituals, incense and oblations and things like that. Things like that. And seeing that, I'm sorry, seeing this, along with the use of that same phrase, where in the Greek Septuagint we see works of the law in Leviticus and some of the books of the Pentateuch describing the Old Testament rituals. Seeing this, we are aided in understanding what Paul meant by his frequent use of the phrase, works of the law, which is in reference to the Old Testament rituals. That's why when I translated it, I, uh, when I saw works of the law in Greek, and I translated it in the Christian New Testament, I knew that Paul was referencing the rituals of the Old Testament, and I translated it, rituals of the law. I'm not the first man to do that. Farah Fenton, while he wasn't right about everything, he, he also did that and understood that the works of the law in Paul's letters meant the rituals of the law. And the Dead Sea Scrolls 4QMMT, that supports and, and, and um, affirms that idea. And, and that's all I'll say about the, the um, particular content of the Dead Sea Scrolls in that aspect. I want to quote, before we proceed from parts of the War Scroll, because I should have probably quoted from it earlier, just so that we get an idea of um, how a damnedly anti-Roman the Qumran sect was. And, and I could just... Um, pick apart here because it's pretty long, and I'm going to pick um, fragment 11, column 2 of the scroll known as 1QM, or, or well, it's equivalent to 1QM. There's parts of this scroll were also found in, in the first cave at Qumran. This is from 4Q491, fragment 11, column 2. I'm not going to uh, mention the ellipses. There aren't really a whole lot of them here, though. This is a pretty complete scroll. It's going to give us an idea of what these people thought about the end of days, because they thought it was upon them, that they were um, gearing up for, for war. It, it, it probably wasn't a very large sect, but they thought that they had God and righteousness on their side, and, and that's the Old Testament example, that when you have God and righteousness on your side, you don't need a whole lot of people, right? But they thought that they were going to do battle with the Romans and prevail, and, and this will show that. And I quote, They shall act in accordance with all this rule on this day when they are positioned opposite the camp of the Kidim. Now the Kidim, the empire of the Kidim, that's used by the sect members to describe the Roman Empire. Afterwards, the priest will blow for them the trumpets of, mem of memorial, and they shall open the gates of the battle. The infantrymen shall go out, and the column shall take up positions between the lines. The priest will blow for them the call, formation, and the column shall deploy at the sound of the trumpets until each man is stationed in his position. The priest shall blow for them a second call for the attack. When they are at the side of the Kittim line, at the throwing distance, each man will take up in his hand his weapons of war. The six priests shall blow the trumpets of the slain with a shrill staccato note, 
to direct the battle. And the Levites and all the throng with the ram's horn shall blow the battle call with a deafening noise. And when the sound goes out, they shall set their hand to cast down the slain of the kidim. And all the throng will silence the sound of the call. And the battle against the kidim is directed. And when Belial girds himself to assist the sons of darkness, they saw the Roman Empire as the sons of darkness. Now, now we, in, in, in Christian identity, we see Israelites in Palestine, and we see Israelites, or, 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 or actually most, more Israelites, a greater percentage of Israelites among the Romans, since they also descended from dispersed Israel, than we see in Palestine. But, the Dead Sea sect, not knowing the history that somebody like Paul of Tarsus knew, because Paul of Tarsus surely did know that and reveal it, well, well, they saw all the Romans as the enemy and the sons of darkness. Now, now you could say that a lot of Christian identists today see all white people in government as the enemy and the sons of darkness, and, and perhaps the Dead Sea Scrolls sect saw it like that. If you were working for the beast, you were evil. But we know. We know better than that. We know that most of our own people are deceived. They're not evil. They just don't know any damn better. And the same was true in, in the days of the Roman Empire and in the days of all world empires. But they saw the Romans as the sons of darkness. This is not a two seed line scroll. You cannot find that idea in the sectarian literature Qumran. That's just the way it is. That's just the truth. And the battle against the Kittim is directed. When Belial girds himself to assist the sons of darkness in the slain of the infantry, start to fall in accordance with God's mysteries. And all those appointed for the battle are tested by them. The priests shall blow in order that another relief line goes out to the flight and they shall take up position between the lines. Now, this is supposed to be a prophecy, right? And that, that, that's why I wrote about this scroll the way I did. That is why I called it a pompous and vain document. It's pompous because they describe this great victory that they're going to have over the Romans. In incredible detail, they describe it. And, um, of course, when the actual uprising in Judea came, that the, um, the, the Judeans just didn't have a chance in hell, right? <laughs> that, that's the way it is. That, that's the way it was in, the, in reality. They shall take up position between the lines, and, and for those involved in the fight, they shall blow the withdrawal. And the high priest will approach and take up position in front of the line and will strengthen their hearts with the power of God and their hands in their fight. And starting to speak, he will say, God has risen in the heart of his people, has tested, he has tested in the crucible. Now, now according to Josephus, and I've read that too, and, and his accounts of the fall of Jerusalem, the high priests were nowhere to be found. <laughs> they, were, they weren't even in town. They fled. <laughs> So, so that's, I, I don't have to read any more, but that is the tenor of the entire war scroll. That they actually 
prophesied this that this great victory over Rome, that their high priest and, and God would lead them to this victory. Well, well, we Christians know that it wasn't meant to be. We know from the writings of Paul and, and from the writings of the sayings of Christ in Matthew chapter 24 and, and Luke chapter 21. We know, reading the scriptures and, and of course, in, in our 2020 hindsight, that Jerusalem was to be destroyed, that Jerusalem was to be destroyed by Rome. Paul spells that out in Romans 16.20. We know that Jerusalem was controlled by the Edomites, by the enemies of God, and its fate was to be destroyed, and it was at the hand of the Romans. The Dead Sea sect, they thought that it was the end of the world, and their Messiah would come and, and lead them to this great victory over the beast empire of the Romans, and and they saw themselves as the children of light, and they saw the Romans as the children of darkness. There is no Christianity in the Dead Sea Scrolls. None whatsoever. Not one whit of Christianity. And of course there's Old Testament Christianity, right? That's not what I'm talking about. We know that the Old Testament is a Christian book. That's not what I'm talking about. There's no New Testament Christianity in the Dead Sea Scrolls at all. That one thing is certain. There is no mention of Christ. There is no mention of anything Christian in the Qumran Scrolls. Even if the sect had heard about Christianity, they made no mention of it. Even if Essenes were among the first Christians, which is not absolutely certain, but it's highly probable, right? And even if the people of Qumran were Essenes, which they probably were not, the people of Qumran were still not Christians. The people of Qumran were still awaiting the Messiah. And their own literature, and I didn't read it here, but in 4285, fragment 5, it's spelled out that the people of Qumran were still awaiting the Messiah who would lead them in the destruction of the Kidim. The Qumran sects post-apocalyptic New Jerusalem scroll, and they had one of those too, talks about Passover sacrifices and offerings. So the Christian understanding of Daniel 9, 24 through 27, which tells us that those things would end, which Paul describes at 1 Corinthians 5, chapter 5, verse 7, that understanding is wanting at Qumran. Other scrolls, as we've just read, the, the 4Q ritual of purification scroll, and, and their ordinances scroll, they also had an ordinances scroll with instructions for their sect, place an emphasis on ritual purification and baptism. Yet, after the baptism of John, we see Christ rejecting ritual purification before the Pharisees, and that's described in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. The Qumran sect, while it was anti-Roman and separatist, surely clung to traditional Judaism, which is how Josephus described that fourth sect among the Judeans, the sect of Judas the Galilean, which was very anti-Roman, which is why I'm convinced that they are the authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls. While the Qumran sect were not Pharisees, they were not Sadducees either, because the Qumran sect believed in spirits and the continued life of the soul after the death of the body. 
from Josephus, Antiquities, Book 18, and from Acts, chapter 23, verse 8, we know that those things were fully rejected by the Sadducees. Now, it should be apparent that while the Dead Sea Scrolls may have been produced during the time of the growth of Christianity, during its initial years, this is not necessarily so. They may have been produced up to 70 years before the birth of Christ, at least when they began. And since the sect was surely not Christian, nor were they advertently anti-Christian, having no apparent knowledge of Christ, since they never ex expressed any of these things in their writings, we cannot find any of the Christian figures in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And, and many people have made claims that Paul of Tarsus or John the Baptist were the figures in the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's just crazy. It's just wrong. One more Dead Sea Scrolls passage which shows that the Qumran sect was certainly not Christian is 4Q271, Fragment 5, Column 1. This is a portion of the Damascus document. And there it says, and I quote, No one should help an animal give birth on a Sabbath day. And if it has fallen into a well or a pit, he should not take it out on the Sabbath. And any man living who falls into a place of water or a well, no one should take him out with a ladder or a rope or a utensil. In the Christian mind, this should immediately evoke the words of Yahshua Christ recorded at Matthew chapter 12 and at Luke chapter 14. For he would surely want us to help the animal, and especially the man, immediately on the Sabbath. And I'll quote Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. And it happened while he entered into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, that they were watching him closely. Then behold, there was a certain edematious man, I think that, that, that's dropsy in the King James Version, before him. And responding, Yahshua spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they were silent. Then taking him, he cured and released him. And he said to them, Now this is just like that Dead Sea Scrolls passage that we just quoted, right? And he said to them, Of which among you should a son or a steer fall into a well, and you should not immediately pull it out on the day of the Sabbath? And they were not able to argue against these things. Therefore, we see that the Qumran sect was in this regard not Christian, not by any means, but rather they were very much like the Pharisees. They were legalists, and a lot of their um, instructional doctrine for the, menu, for the members of their sect show that they were legalists, much like the Pharisees. Perhaps it may be, and I've read it all, but I can't remember it all. It's been several years. Perhaps it may be that those instructional documents are probably a good insight into a lot of the legalism of the Pharisees that we see in the New Testament, but which isn't really codified, right? 
The Dead Sea Scrolls are sadly an enigma to most people. They're even an enigma to most people who quote them, who will never have the time or the initiative to read them all. The fullest published edition of the scrolls, and I, and I wish I had it, but I don't, right, is Discoveries in the Judean Desert, published by Oxford University Press. It's 38 volumes the last time I read about it, but it may be even more than that now. Christians should always be wary of anyone who makes claims concerning their content without making any citations or any display of the content and context upon which those claims are based. I've seen a lot of false claims in my 14 years in Christian identity concerning the Dead Sea Scrolls. Without following a scholarly criteria, one can say almost anything about the scrolls, since nearly all of the audience intended will not or simply cannot check the authenticity of such claims. Indeed, if no references are given, one has to read the entire body of literature, which is sometimes several volumes, in order to check them out. And that's well beyond the ability of most people, not, not mental ability, but just their time ability. The edition of the scrolls, which I've used for the citations here, is called the Dead Sea Scrolls Study Edition by Florentino G. Martinez and Ibert J. C. Tigkalar. This edition offers a catalog of all the scrolls which contain copies of biblical books, including a list, of the full a list of the full contents, but not the text of the biblical books. We need a separate book for that. And I usually simply use the, um, the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible by Abag, Abag Flint, and Ulrich, which, which is good enough. The edition I, I use also has a copy of the Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek in certain manuscripts, transcription, and the English translation of all the scrolls, which are not merely copies of biblical books. So, so the Dead Sea Scrolls are accessible in, in two or three volumes, right? It's not that they're not accessible. And, and um, for the most part, they're scholarly. In two volumes, all of the Targums, the Apocrypha, Sectarian documents, and other literature of two Qumran are, are um, fully reproduced. Yet where there are supplied the common identifiers of the scrolls which are being referenced, what, when you read a writer or hear a claim that supplies a reference, one should be able to check those citations for himself in any edition of the Dead Sea Scrolls to see the text in its original context as long as it's fairly translated. Now this should always be the case in any any scholarly endeavor, not only the Dead Sea Scrolls, I mean, what we need, in, in, especially in Christian identity, especially because our message is so contrary to the typical pap we hear about the Bible and history, because people don't check out what they've, what they've seen claimed, we need full citations in all of our scholarly endeavors and in all of our claims about antiquity in the Bible, biblical or otherwise. While there are indeed some gems in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and there are, I do not believe there are any truly important contributions to our understanding of Christianity which lend any greater value 
that we could find in any of the works which we already have. The real value in the Dead Sea Scrolls is, I believe, in the apocryphal literature which they contain, which um, can be used in accordance with, with what we already have as an additional witness to the antiquity of certain writings, not necessarily to their canonicity. There's value in the sectarian literature to the point where we can gain insight into the thoughts of first century BC, first century AD people, and how they felt about the scripture. I don't believe that the um, the writers of the Dead Sea Scrolls had a preponderance of Edomites among them. I believe that they were probably, at least for the most part, Judean, even if the scrolls are wayward in a lot of their um, in a lot of their interpretations of the prophets, they did anticipate a Messiah, but for all the wrong reasons. And we see in the New Testament that even the apostles had expected Christ to deliver them from Roman rule at that time. That the people of Jerusalem knew that Christ was their Messiah, and they sought to make him their king. They just didn't understand the prophets either. So the people of Qumran, they weren't really far off from the, the general feelings that we see reflected in the New Testament in Judea, even among the disciples of Christ. So, so they do have value. They, they do lend value into how the, the um, books of Genesis were interpreted. And, and those, the, those interpretations are highly favorable to our two seed line beliefs concerning the events of Genesis. But there, there's no doubt that they're not 100% in agreement with us, but they're highly favorable. And, and um, they're good for those insights, but they're not going to change our beliefs about Christianity or the Old Testament if we look at them fairly. Of course, if we let people like um, Joseph Jeffers or, or um, Clayton Douglas make up stories from the Dead Sea Scrolls, Brother Nazariah there's another clown, make up stories from the Dead Sea Scrolls and cram them down our throats, well, well then, yeah, that would change um, one's perspective on a New Testament. But that would be based on lies and not on anything that was true. That, that's for certain. So, so I hope there was some value in this program tonight, and, and I thank you for listening. I'll be back here Friday night. I'm not sure yet what I'm going to do Friday night. I'll try to make up my mind by Monday and... and um, Put it in my event schedule on Christagenia. Praise Yahweh and God bless you all. Good night.